One of the most formative influences in my life is the summer camp I attended for many years in western North Carolina. Uh, Starting at age 10, I spent two weeks there each summer as a camper, and when I turned 16 and was eligible to work there, the time that I spent at that camp quickly escalated to almost three months each summer. This trend continued throughout college until I went to seminary and my summers became occupied with other responsibilities. All total, I have spent well more than a year of my life at that camp. That camp and its staff strengthened my love of nature. They taught me how to pitch a tent, to read a trail map, to build a fire. They taught me how to play guitar, to be a lifeguard, and to approach religion in a more open-minded, intellectual sense. This camp, like many other summer camps in North America during the 20th century, also had a strong American Indian theme. How many of you went to a summer camp that had some sort of American Indian theme? All right. There were brightly painted totem poles that towered prominently throughout the campgrounds. The age groups were named after Native American tribes, Cheyenne, Cherokee, Comanche, Apache, Seminole, Choctaw. And each Sunday evening, we dressed up like Indians and ascended the mountain for council ring. Now, be assured that I will momentarily address the problematic aspect of privileged white folk playing at Native American spirituality. But first, let us travel a little bit farther down the road of how, for better or worse, Native American themes in summer camps um, were formational, both for myself and for many other North American children, including many in this sanctuary in the past few decades. The rhythm of camp life built built to a peak, at least at the one I attended, uh, to a peak in resolution each Sunday. We were allowed to sleep late, then in the late morning, each age group would gather for an outdoor worship service. And I think that's where I first learned in good Emersonian fashion that sitting on the grass under the shade of trees and beneath the canopy of sky felt as much or more like authentic sacred space for worship than my childhood sanctuary where the stained glass obscured any view of the outside world beyond the church walls, but it also shaded you from the sun. So there are uh, (laughs) advantages and disadvantages to the stained glass ceiling. I learned on those summer camp Sunday mornings that in nature it was easiest for me to connect with what we Unitarian Universalists call the direct experience of transcending mystery and wonder. Now, as I said before, on Sunday evenings we would ascend the mountains to sit in a large circle around a pretty giant fire um, for counseling. And looking back, my early religious experience was shaped by that contrast between Christian-themed Sunday morning worship Um, under the bright light of the sun, and Native American-themed Sunday night council ring lit by moon, stars, and firelight. The experience for myself and for many of my fellow campers, if only at an intuitive level, was that these two different spiritual experiences were both good, were both vital, and were both desirable. But after experiencing both a spirituality of Sunday morning and a spirituality of Sunday night at camp, many of us sensed something was missing when we returned home uh, and had access only to Christian-themed Sunday morning religion. A longing to return to a fuller experience of life and spirituality is part of what kept many of us coming back to camp for so many years. 
Now, another way of speaking about this dynamic is that I believe many, if not most or all of us, long for a spirituality that speaks to our whole self, not just part or half of us. We long for a spirituality that addresses the fullness of mind and body, masculine and feminine, reason and emotion, action and contemplation, peace and justice. Now, I don't mean to imply, however, that supplementing European Christianity with Native American spirituality is the only way to experience this sort of union and balance. Another example is the 20th century Benedictine monk, Bede Griffiths. Griffiths' birth name was Alan, and he was born to a middle-class family in Surrey, England. Even as a Benedictine monk, whose whole life was immersed deeply in European Christianity, Griffiths felt that something was missing in his life. This longing eventually led him to move permanently to India, where he said he discovered the other half of my soul. He settled in an ashram known as Shantivanam, or the Forest of Peace, which is Christian in faith in a broad, open-minded sense, but Hindu in lifestyle. Out of this experience, he wrote many books on Hindu-Christian dialogue and over time became known as Swami Dayananda, which in Sanskrit means the bliss of compassion, because that's what he experienced in finding the other half of his soul, was the bliss of truly, compassionately engaging with all parts of daily life. Let me give you one more example of two different spiritualities supplementing each other. A few weeks ago, we heard a wonderful performance in the sanctuary of the Indigo Girls song, Closer to Fine. Rumor has it we may hear it again at the auctions. That's another reason to get your tickets in the narthex after worship. Many of that group's songs are religiously themed, and some of you may know that Emily Sailors, one of the group's two members, has a father named Don Sailors, who is a retired theology of worship professor at Emory University. They've both spoken and written about the similarities and differences between the music that the Indigo Girls play in clubs on Saturday night and the music that her father helps play and sing on only hours later in houses of worship on Sunday morning. Stereotypically, the folk rock music at an Indigo Girls concert on Saturday night is more embodied, more active, more social justice oriented. The music at many houses of worship on Sunday morning is more contemplative, peaceful, more worshipful in the traditional sense of that word. But the part of the point Don and Emily Sellers are trying to make is that Sunday morning music may need to borrow some lessons from Saturday night and be more embodied, more active, more social justice oriented. We do some of that well here, I think, and with the UU hymnal and with some of our music. Likewise, we may need to consider the ways that Saturday evening rock concerts can also be an experience of worship where we feel deeply connected and lifted up. In different ways, each of these examples, uh, summer camp, council ring, Christian monks traveling to India, and folk rockers in dialogue with worship professors, all point to a longing for wholeness, for the other half of my soul, for mind and body, masculine and feminine, action and contemplation, peace and and justice. And this longing for wholeness is one of the many reasons I'm grateful that Unitarian Universalism draws not from one source, but from six sources. Direct experience, words and deeds of prophetic men and women, 
wisdom from all the world's religions, Jewish and Christian teachings, humanist teachings, and the spiritual teachings of earth-centered traditions. But the way in which we draw from each of those six sources matters, particularly for those of us who, like me, are heir to white male privilege that is rooted in the Western world's tradition of patriarchy and colonialism. When examined through a critical lens, my experience at summer camp of dressing up like an American Indian and going to council ring begins to look like one more example of white privilege, patriarchy, and colonialism, of just taking things on your own terms, however you want it, damn the consequences for others. Unlike Bede Griffiths, who went to India and said, teach me, let me learn from you. Or the indigo girl and her father, who met as equals to dialogue about different styles of music. White children playing at Native American spirituality can look a lot like a powerful cultural group taking yet one more thing from marginalized indigenous people from whom so much has already been taken. So we need to walk on this ground lightly. So on one hand, I do need to name that I'm deeply grateful for my childhood immersion into Native American spirituality, even if it was in a compromised form. Because it helped plant seeds in my life Um, the seed of honoring silence, the seed of recognizing that there is perhaps in some sense one great spirit way beyond the sectarianism of the Christian God, and the seed of environmentalism, of considering the impact of your actions even unto the seventh generation to come after you. The quote from Black Elk that we heard earlier um, sounds a lot like what you use call the interdependent web of all existence, that first piece, which he called the most important, the, that the center of the universe is really everywhere and is within each of us. I'd even go so far as to say that my early exposure to Native American spirituality helped plant the seeds that later drew me, years later, to Unitarian Universalism. At the same time, I'm also grateful that during my final years at that camp, when I was in college, I was able to serve on a team that helped transition the camp away from a Native American theme to an ecology-based theme. The totem poles were taken down, the campers stopped dressing up like Native Americans, and the names of the age groups were changed from Indian tribes to the names of tree leaves. Buckeye, birch, hickory, hemlock, poplar, sycamore, as part of an effort to inculcate an awareness of indigenous flora and fauna. There does, however, continue to be opportunities for campers to learn about the history and lore specifically of the Cherokee tribe who are native to the mountains of western North Carolina. Not long after helping facilitate this major thematic shift at that summer camp, I was called to serve as the associate pastor at a congregation in northeast Louisiana. Upon my arrival, I was dismayed to see that the local university's mascot was, anybody want to guess, the Indians. Uh, including, of course, a caricatured mascot of a Native American. Now, I realize that I'm delving into perhaps even more dangerous territory here, because even though we may not have the most Native Americans ever, though we have some, um, we may have more fans of teams like the Atlanta Braves, the Florida Seminoles, the Washington Redskins, dare I say. But allow me for now to share more specifically about this one university. 
About three years after my arrival, I was pleased to learn that the local university had finally decided to rename its mascot. Of course, this was after intense pressure from the NCAA for schools to cease using names that were, quote, hostile and abusive to Native Americans. Then I learned that the replacement that continues to this day was to be the Warhawks. <laughs> it's like out of the frying pan into the fire. Uh, I wrote a letter to the editor to protest this use of war imagery for college athletics, but it was to no avail. There's a lot more I could say about that particular debate, but as we consider Native American spirituality this morning, I think it's important to spend some time thinking about what some Native Americans have said about this issue. One famous statement was made in 1993 at the Lakota Summit 5, an international gathering of U.S. and Canadian Lakota, Dakota, and Nakota nations. The statement was provocatively titled, Declaration of War Against Exploiters of Lakota Spirituality. And while I do find a declaration of war against uh, exploiters of Lakota spirituality to be provocative, even perhaps exaggerated, Keep in mind all the language we've heard for years from the U.S. government about the war on drugs, the war on terror. And remember all the centuries of deaths, betrayals, and insults out of which this declaration of war against exploiters of Lakota spirituality arises. This statement is short, only about two pages or 800 words. I'll, I'll link to it to the full statement in the uh, manuscript version of the sermon, but for now I want to hear, invite you to hear just a few excerpts of the statement. For too long we have suffered the unspeakable indignity of having our most precious Lakota ceremonies and spiritual practices desecrated, mocked, and abused by non-Indian wannabes, hucksters, and cultists, commercial profiteers, and self-styled New Age shamans and their followers. With horror and outrage. We see this disgraceful, disgraceful expropriation of our sacred Lakota traditions has reached epidemic proportions in urban areas throughout the country. Our precious sacred pipe is being desecrated through the sale of pipestone pipes at flea markets, powwows, and New Age retail stores. Pseudo-religious corporations have been formed to charge people money for admission to phony sweat lodges and vision quest programs, and the television and film industry continues to saturate the entertainment media with vulgar, sensationalist, and grossly distorted representations of Lakota spirituality and culture, which reinforce the public's negative stereotyping of Indian people and which gravely impair the self-esteem of our children. The Declaration continues, but this excerpt gives you a taste of the anger that many Native Americans feel when they see their sacred rituals commodified by non-Native by non Americans for the profit of non-Native Americans, or used in ways that seem sacrilegious to Native Americans, even if non-Native Americans do not intend sacrilege. At this point, I'd like to invite us to take a step back because many issues of authority have become incredibly murky in our postmodern world. As many of you know, until recently I was a minister in the liberal Christian tradition. And in that tradition, many Christians would not recognize the Bible, church tradition, the Roman Catholic Pope. as They would recognize them only as one among many sources of authority, not as a sole source of authority. 
Thus, many scholars have begun to speak not of Christianity in the singular, as if it were a monolithic entity, but of Christianities, plural. There are many legitimate Christianities. Likewise, although a particular gathered group of leaders from the Lakota, Dakota, and Nakota nations in 1993 spoke forcefully without pulling punches about the abuse and misuse as they see it of Native American spirituality, there are other individuals and groups of Native Americans who nevertheless feel that there are ways of legitimately sharing Native American traditions and practices with non-Natives. In reflecting on this dynamic in the last few days since the order of service was printed, I've come to think that I should have titled this sermon not Native American Spirituality, singular, but Native American Spiritualities, plural. Some of you you have shared with me that you have a Native American ancestor. You heard from Charles, a longtime member of our congregation, of his Seminole heritage. Some of you have done extensive study of Native American traditions, sometimes with Native Americans. Should Native American religious traditions be limited to preserving a singular idea of how things allegedly were in the past as determined by a council of elders? Or is there also room for new rituals to emerge that both honor the past and seek relevance for the present? Here at the beginning of the 21st century, it has become difficult at best to discern the lines of who has the authority to decide what is a legitimate use of any religious tradition. I want to confess that my inner liberal instinctively wants to resist any religious authority, whether Christian, Native American, secular, or otherwise, that attempts to restrict my freedom to practice religion freely using whatever sources I wish to draw from and in whatever way feels right to me. That baseline religious freedom is too precious and too hard won to surrender. At the same time, my inner liberal is conflicted. My inner liberal is heartbroken at the atrocities that Native Americans have suffered and wants to respect the wishes to the greatest extent possible of anguished cries like the declaration of war against abusers of Lakota spirituality. So where can and where should we go from here? Let me give you one example. Yesterday was the fall equinox, and ten of us gathered for a ritual to celebrate this time of balance of almost equal parts daylight and dark. The ritual drew principally from that sixth source of Unitarian Universalism, spiritual teachings of earth-centered traditions which celebrate the sacred circle of life and instruct us to live in harmony with the rhythms of nature. This ritual was led by our congregation's cups group. Charles wrote the ritual, as he many times does for the cups group, and it sought to craft a ritual with integrity from this sixth source. This whole issue of cultural appropriation with proper respect and with proper reciprocity is a difficult line that Unitarian Universalists almost inevitably walk often. When considering the use of a religious source that is not part of your cultural heritage, the Unitarian Universalist Association suggests some of the following questions as helpful guidelines. Why am I doing this? What's my motivation? Why this particular cultural material or event and not another? What's the 
context in which I'm going to use this cultural material? What's the cultural context from which, from which it's taken? What's the history of it? What are the controversies and sensitivities surrounding this material? What are the power relationships in this context, the privileges? Have I asked people from the culture for feedback and critical review of my plans? Have I asked people from the culture to create or co-create this material with me? Did I invite people from the culture to participate, to speak for themselves in this plan? Am I in relationship with people from this culture? Am I willing to be part of that community's struggle? I think that's a good one. Am I willing to be part of this community's struggle? What can I give in return? What do I offer from, to those from whom I'm borrowing? These are a few, of the, a few of the many questions that the UUA suggests for negotiating this complex territory of cultural borrowing. These questions remind me of a time in seminary when we were focusing on multiculturalism and anti-racist work. I remember asking one of the African-American students if she would tell me more about some of the times that she had experienced unintentional racism in our divinity school. I appreciated the candor of her response. She said, honestly, that sounds exhausting. I can't save all you white people. You need to figure out a way to save yourselves. She was certainly right that racism does alienate us from one another in ways that are harmful all around. And she's right that we all have our own work to do. I don't have all the answers for how I, as a European American, should approach the many different nuances of Native American spirituality. The sermon has been just one attempt to articulate some of my past struggles and future hopes. In closing, I want to share with you part of a poem from the womanist theologian Emily Towns, writing about the struggles of power and communication between white feminists, black womanists, and Latina mujerista theologians. She writes, I am also aware that other voices have not yet joined, and there are those who were just pulling up to our kitchen table. I'll take my words to heart and not interrupt them as they speak, but listen from a deep place and challenge my scholarship, my emotions, my history, and respond to them with my voice, not an imitation of theirs.